Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew White Dad from Denver. I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is Heather McGee Revisited, What Racism Costs Us All. And we're dropping into your feeds today, even though we're not due for another episode until next week, because it is a special day. That's right. Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, comes out in paperback today, February 8th, complete with a new afterword that ties the themes of the book to the January 6th insurrection. The book is incredible. I still can't really believe that she agreed to come on to our podcast. I think she recorded our interview in between a hit on Meet the Press and a live stream with John Legend. So kind of a big deal. I mean, that's really dope. I still can't believe I didn't get invited to the interview. Had had you been part of the podcast then, you definitely would have gotten an invite. We'll believe that. (laughs) Yes. If she agrees to come back on, you're definitely getting an invite. Heather, do you hear that? I need an invite to the party. She's great. And even though you weren't there for the interview, I am excited to get to talk to you about the conversation she and I had. So Mm -hmm. listeners, definitely stick around for the outro. The book is really awesome. And the episode is certainly one of my favorites that we've had on the podcast and felt like a good time to revisit it. Yeah. Why do you say what makes you excited about revisiting it again? You know, I think the themes of her book, this zero sum mindset, the idea that gains for some must come at the cost of gains for others, that there's kind of like a fixed pie in the country, mm-hmm. was something that reading her book was totally solidified. One of those books that just totally shifts how you how you see the world. And it certainly doesn't feel like we've somehow solved that problem since the conversation. So it mm-hmm. still feels relevant. Yes, the idea that we're all harmed, Black and brown folks first and most, really resonates with me, especially in the context right now of the legislation around book banning. Right. Mm. How, you know, a certain group seems to be targeted, black and brown folks um, and talking about race and racism, but how it really does harm all of us. Yeah. The the new afterword in the book is great. I think the book came out, you know, within three weeks of the January 6th insurrection. And so mm. it had gone to print by the time that happened. But clearly that was sort of a culmination of so many of the, the themes that are running throughout the book. Yeah. Let's take a listen. My name is Heather McGee. I'm the author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Yes, it is such a great book. I'm so glad you're here. I wonder if we can just start with your bio a little bit, maybe go all the way back to Chicago. You can tell us about the apartment that you grew up in and the neighborhood that you grew up in and how that (laughs) impacted you. Yeah, so I was born on the south side of Chicago and my parents lived in an apartment building that was owned by my great-grandmother, Flossie McGee, who ultimately lived to be over 100 and was a huge part of my life growing up. Mm. Flossie, Grandma Flossie, bought that apartment building on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood known as Chatham or Chatham Avalon, which was 90-plus percent Black, on a land contract, which are those kinds of predatory contracts that ta Coates writes about in his article for The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations, when he talks about the real estate market in Chicago. And it was one of those wealth-stripping contracts where, because there were all these racial covenants and redlining, the only way Black folks could buy would be to buy kind of a, a shell from a white landowner and pay every month. And if you ever missed a payment, that was it. You, it wasn't like you were building up equity. Right. You didn't get any equity or the deed until your final payment. And so it was this incredibly risky enterprise and the interest rates were double digits and there were all these fees. And my great grandma, Flossie, was a domestic worker, a nanny and a house cleaner. Um, and she also played the numbers and she was really lucky with the numbers. And so she would have her, you know, tiny little paychecks and tips. And then she was always gambling with the neighborhood numbers game. And combination of that allowed her to, against all odds, buy and keep this apartment building. And, and my dad and my mom lived in the, the basement apartment and she, you know, rented out the, the other floors. That's amazing. And it was a, it was a almost entirely black neighborhood. Yeah. What, what was the impact on you as a young child of, of growing up in that environment? Well, so we moved around a lot, which is also, I think, a feature of, you know, being on the edge of the middle class, right? So we 
were constantly moving. After my parents got divorced, which happened when I was two, I lived with my mom and my brother. And we lived about half my childhood on the South Side. And then at some point, my mom got a bigger job, a bigger contract. And we were able to move to Evanston, which is a near north suburb of Chicago. Uh, A few years later, my dad ended up getting a better job and moving to Oak Park. And so both Evanston and Oak Park are these like super proximate to Chicago inner ring suburbs that are known, particularly Oak Park is really known for its integration. There was a lot of explicit work done during the era of blockbusting and white flight to maintain an integrated neighborhood in Oak Park. And then in Evanston, I mean, I was looking back at my fifth grade school picture and it was like pretty much the population of the city and of the country. You know, mm. it was it was around like 20%, 30% black, so it was sort of more black, but it was a pretty diverse little integrated public school. Right. So I was really... I, I think I've had like every kind of educational experience from disinvested 90 plus black public schools to 90 plus percent black Catholic school, which I went to for one year. Oh, wow. um, Where like the only white faces were like Jesus on the walls and the white (laughs) principal (laughs) with some of the teachers. And then I went to these, you know, pretty integrated public schools And then I went to an almost entirely white private school for boarding school for my seventh, eighth, and ninth grade years in Massachusetts. I left home, um, and it was was a pretty wild uh, cultural shock. And then I went to a private school for high school that was also a boarding school outside of Boston that was very diverse racially for a private school, but of course is a private school and one of the toniest schools in the country. So there's not a lot of class diversity. What class diversity there is, is, is very intentional, you know? Right. So, so your mother was a healer of some sort. My mom, whose name is Dr. Gail Christopher was a holistic health doctor back before that was cool uh, in the seventies and eighties. And she had a practice, a holistic discipline called nephropathy that works on connective tissue. And she was a clinical nutritionist. Mm. And so she saw patients. In fact, my dad was one of her patients. He had a racquetball injury, if that like dates, you know, when wow. that was, yep. right? That, yeah. I mean, that makes a picture right there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody plays racquetball anymore, no. but it was like all yeah. the rage right. for a while in the like late 70s and early 80s. <laughs> Maybe too many knee injuries. I don't know. But she always had one foot in kind of social policy. She very much understood early on, I think, that you can't really heal an unwell physical body that's in an unwell social body. And she was very Mm. clear about the social determinants of health and the way racism was itself uh, a sort of risk factor of of health. And so she would have contracts to work with single moms and teenage moms in the projects and at a group home. And she was sort of, as I say in the book, she had an entrepreneur's mind and a social worker's heart. Mm. So she was like on to the racism causes physical harm yeah. thing long before that she was, was <laughs> before that was like a thing that people acknowledged yeah. or knew about. That's exactly right. I mean, she she was kind of one of the godmothers of the social determinants of health. Right. So she she knew about that. How did she sort of reconcile with that with then sending you to a almost entirely white boarding school? Or how did she like prepare you to to kind of I'm guessing that you did not find uh, an entirely white boarding school free from racism. <laughs> Um, you know, it's so interesting. I think about, you know, I'm a mom now. Uh, I have a two and a half year old son. I think about the ways in which my mother both knew as much as there is to know about racism, right? Both in her personal life and intellectually. Mm -hmm. And yet felt like to prepare her Black children for life, she needed to, above all, give us the self-esteem that the world was arrayed to rob from us so that we would always feel like we could do anything. Mm. And there's sort of a tension there. It's like, do you you tell your children that the world is stacked against them? Obviously not. (laughs) Like, that's no way. You don't open with that. Right. Right. She believes in the power of consciousness to shape 
experiences, right? So she wanted us mm. to have the consciousness that we could sort of dissolve mountains, that we right. could do anything. And my mom would tell us that, but she didn't have that consciousness for herself, right? She's a woman, she's Black, she was a single mom. Like, there was just sort of nothing about the world that would have echoed that back to her about herself. Right. Interestingly, I first identified that consciousness, the idea that you've total power to effectuate what you want in the world. Mm. I first really heard it when I went to a white school and saw the way these kids like walk through the world as if they just owned it. Mm, and I was like, oh, right. oh, that's what she was talking about, you know? Right, right. And so, Lord, give me the confidence of a mediocre white exactly, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's what she means. That's what it would look like to feel as the conceptual artist Adrian Piper says, no bounded sense of self at all, right? Like the, there's no limitation on your impact in the world. Right. Now, you know, obviously that's a problem when you have that sense of agency and efficacy and have no consciousness about the inequalities of the world. Right. So there's a lot of ways in which, particularly when held by people with sort of unreflective privilege, that's a major problem. Right. But ultimately what racism does to, you know, children of color and what sexism does to little girls, right, is, is teach us that we're less than. And so as a parent, I think she wanted to teach us that we are just as good as, while also instilling the values that we are here as service to our community, which mm. was never, never a question, right? Like it never occurred to me not to try to make the world better with my life. Mm. That was just sort of what, of course, you have to do. That's why you're here. Yeah. So what was that experience like being at an all-white boarding school? I mean, I imagine there was some racism, but also you thrived in many ways. I'm assuming it it wasn't all bad. For sure. I experienced a bunch of explicit racism and unconscious racism, but I it wasn't terrible, right? It was on balance and a wonderful experience for me because it was a truly precious educational nursery right like it's so right. it was so small my school was so small they yeah. went from a massive public school to this tiny school where i lived in a little old house as a dormitory with like five adults and like nine kids mm. and had these tiny tiny classes my graduating class was i think like 14 or 15 kids right so oh there's sort of no way for an intellectually starved precocious kid to not thrive in an experience like that because right. i suddenly had access to so much adult attention and right. you know particularly and, with with the like you with that that sense that your mom had instilled that like yeah you you can move mountains that's that, right that you can you can own the world yeah and I was a nerd, right? I was a true nerd. So mm -hmm. it was like, great, there are more books here, you know? <laughs> like, right. Right. And yet, I think the thing that was the most profound, even though I was able to create friendships with white kids, and actually there were a lot of Asian boarders, right, who came from Hong Kong and Japan and China, so that they were actually my closest friends, as well as a Puerto Rican girl from the Bronx who was my roommate um, the whole time. I was able to make friends, and it, it wasn't an experience of being totally isolated, even though I was the only Black girl in my only Black person in my class. Mm. It was a class of 14 kids. But even as I went through to high school, which was Milton Academy, 50% day, 50% border, it was like 30 to 40% kids of color when I was there, if I'm not mistaken. I, you know, I generally speaking found my niche, right? Like I was a mm. big theater nerd and I did that, you know, like I, 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 I was okay. And I think honestly, because I'd had that forced adaptation into this white New England world so young, I was 11 in seventh grade, mm. you know, right. like I'd had a few years to get used to the weirdnesses of white, of white culture, <laughs> right? Like it was right. like, oh, okay. Right. Um, this is the way you do things. All right, all right, I can do that. I can figure this out, you know? But the, the real lagging thing, the thing that never really worked for me was I never felt beautiful. Like it just mm. wasn't, that wasn't going to fly, right? Like the white girl supremacy, um, the white hair, the white skin, the white body type, the white beauty products, the just the white way of speaking and laughing and flirting. Like this, just this idea of white femininity was so total 
and I was so outside of it. And when you're young, right, when you're going through puberty, that's kind of like the thing. That's like the most important thing. And so that was completely denied to me by spending my adolescence in a very white world. If I had been in a global majority school or if I had been in a, you know, more black community still for school, um, I think that would have been very different. Yeah. I, I, heard, I heard you say that the, the first time you saw yourself for real, the first time that you, like, you, you viewed yourself as sort of a full, beautiful human being was when you were studying abroad in Italy. Oh, yeah. You, you've gone into the B-sides, Andrew. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't I, remember I went, where I said that. <laughs> I, went, I went deep. I went deep. How much of it was just the time in your life? And how much of it was that like, you needed to get out of America? You had to oh, leave yeah. this country sure. to be able to do that. Um, that was the first time where I saw myself outside of the white supremacist American beauty standards. Mm. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. Right. Oh, <laughs> you know? So that was a that was a big wake-up call. I think it really was about leaving, yeah, just the American norm that is so obsessed with a very narrow type of white femininity. Right. Um, and even Italy. I mean, you didn't go to, you didn't go to Ghana. Right. No, like, exactly. You went to Italy. <laughs> like, wasn't... <laughs> have to go that far. I could have gone to Canada probably. Oh, that's great. Um, all right, let, let's talk about the book a little bit, The Some of Us. You open with, why can't we have nice things? Mm-hmm. And the kind of driving metaphor is this drained pool. I wonder if you can just tell us how you came to that and, and why that's the theme that runs through the book. Yeah. So I spent nearly 20 years working in public policy, mostly economic policy, trying to sort of solve the question of why can't we have nice things? Why can't we, being we all Americans, nice things being not like laundry that does itself, but things like universal health care and a real public health system to handle pandemics and reliable modern infrastructure and childcare and a well-funded school in every neighborhood. Right. These are the nice things that other advanced economies somehow manage to handle and figure out for their people, and we decidedly don't. And the we is all Americans, and by that I mean both disproportionately Black and Brown Americans, but also white Americans who are the largest group of the uninsured and the largest group of the impoverished. And I went to a whole bunch of places across the country to figure out the answer to that question. You know, what Mm -hmm. is the root of our dysfunction? And one of the first places I went was Montgomery, Alabama, where I visited the central park in the city. It's called Oak Park. And I walked the grounds of what used to be a massive public swimming pool Mm -hmm. and is now a big, wide expanse of grass. And the story of the Oak Park pool is a story that was replicated across the country and for me really began to stand as a symbol of what racism had cost this whole country. In this case, they cost us these really nice swimming pools. Yeah, there were these grand resort style pools and they were just this sort of example of a commitment at the time, this sort of governing ethos that was part of the New Deal era that was like, The United States government has a responsibility to make the people of this country's standard of living as high as possible. And we're going to have massive subsidies for home ownership for working class folks who never would have dreamed of owning their own home. We're going to create this New Deal labor protections. We're going to later create the GI Bill. We're going to have, you know, market rules that foster competition and strong consumer protections, high minimum wage, really make sure that the labor laws are tilted towards the the right to form a union, all of these things. And it created the greatest middle class the world had ever seen. And yet virtually all that I just talked about in terms of those public protections and benefits were effectively for whites only in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, whether it was explicitly like with redlining and housing or through disparate impact, like the fact that millions of Black GIs didn't get the benefits of the GI Bill because of redlining and housing and and, and educational segregation. And the pools, as well, in many places across the country, were for whites only, either by ordinance or by custom, which was usually enforced by, you know, violence. And in the 1960s, late 50s and 60s, Black communities began to say, hey, those are our tax dollars, we should be able to swim too. And in Montgomery, Alabama, 
as well as in many other places, Ohio, West Virginia, Washington State, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, <laughs> the towns decided to drain their public pools rather than integrate them. De- decided to say, if we have to share this public good with Black people, we'd rather just not have it. Mm-hmm. Like, we'd rather just close the whole thing down. Yeah. What What did you take away from that? What was the What was the kind of hidden or maybe not so hidden meaning in that? For me, that is a story of a white elite making a decision that robbed the masses of white people of something that had once been seen as a public benefit. It then made swimming something that you could do if you could afford to do it, right? If you could build a backyard pool, which is why we started to see these boom in in backyard pools and these members-only swim clubs, these private swim clubs that cropped up everywhere. And of course, it meant that, you know, Black families never, never, ever got to swim in these public pools. And the idea of the drained pool and drained pool politics is what happens when the majority of white people turn their backs on public goods because of their suspicion that the public is not good Mm. and that the people who are included in the public are not good. And of course, that has been the story of white flight from public schools since school integration as well. Right. Once you once you start seeing it, then it's everywhere. It's in it's in our public schools. It's in our pools. It's in our parks. It's in our higher education. It's in housing. Um, I, I wonder if we can sort of step back a little bit to one of the themes, particularly of Chapter Seven, living apart is is how segregated we are. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that came to be. Kind of what what were the incentives for the people in power to enforce that segregation to keep people apart. I think you said that that physical separation is the most powerful way to ensure the allegiance of the white masses to race over class. Did I say that? I, well, that's what it says in your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so chapter seven is, is living apart. And as I do in every chapter, give a few pages of history, right? We can't understand where we are now if we don't understand the rules that, that led us here. And I did research that I... I did not know before I set out to write the book about exactly how we got so segregated and the idea that it was not actually an invention of the Jim Crow South, that the North was actually who segregated first because yeah. in the South, under slavery, you didn't need segregation, right? You wanted Black people as close as possible. You wanted access to their bodies and their labor. Whereas in the North, there was this view that free Black people needed to be kept separate because you wanted to keep the groups of workers separate from each other and in competition, because that would allow you to keep wages low. That if you could, you know, pit the Irish workers against the Black workers, then it would be easier for you to pay whichever group was willing to work for cheaper, right? And there'd always be a threat of, of, of substitution. So the lesson there for me was that the economic logic is always what guides the racial understanding, right? There's no, like, inherent understanding of the different races and how they're supposed to operate and what their sort of caricature is. It's guided by the economic imperative. Right. Race didn't create the economic differences, that the need for economic differences is what created race. Why we have race at all is because we needed some way to justify keeping keeping some people down and some people up. That's exactly right. To create this hierarchy of of human value. Well said, Andrew. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Um, I talk about sort of where the segregation came from. I I talk as I do, I probably mention in every chapter at some point or the other, just because it's so important to understanding our economy today and understanding our school system today and all of that, you know, the, the decision in the New Deal by the federal government to redline and then later to require racial covenants in, in all of its housing developments that were subsidized. I talk about that history But then there is, as Richard Rothstein, obviously, in The Color of Law, the sort of insight that that provoked him to write the book is this general approach that powerful people have today, which is to say, oh, yeah, we used to segregate by law, and now it's just a matter of personal preference. Mm. And he really wrote The Color of Law to kind of explode that idea. And so as I think about the different ways that we are segregated today— the way it most shows up in the choices that we feel like we're making is around choice around school, 
right? right? And that's that's probably the place where most Americans of all races make the most significant racialized choices for themselves and for their children, where it's very clear, how segregated do I want my schools to be, right? right. It's sort of like the choice, right? Right, With without understanding the the racialized nature of it, right? Like the, that that is the racialized choice we're making, but we don't even think of it as being about race. We exactly. don't even think of it as, you know, choosing how segregated I want my school to be. We think of it as like, oh, I want the good schools or the good test scores or the good neighborhood or those things. Yeah. And I'm struck by how little we white people think of that as a problem. Yeah. So in the chapter Living Apart, I wanted to flip on its head what is often thought about as segregation is our problem as Black people. Mm. Right. We're the ones who are segregated. We're the ones who are kept away from the good stuff. Right. And that is, of course, true. Right. I mean, of course, you can't look at the racial wealth divide and not see how segregation has cost Black communities and Black families. But it's also true that the most segregated racial group in America is white people. Right. Most likely to live only with people of their own race, most likely to have totally homogenous social networks. It's white people. And right. so I wanted to flip it on its head a little bit and say, what, well, what are the costs to all of us? We only ever think of it like, you know, there's this imaginary divide and the benefits accrue to one side and the cost to the other. And yet our whole system is sicker and more impoverished because of this lie of racial hierarchy and the segregation that is used to enforce it. Yeah, and that feels like such a missed opportunity, that framing, because we we could have had that. We could have mm-hmm. understood that back. And so I think back to, you know, you talk about the the appendices to the Brown v. Board decision. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's some pushback to some of that. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, rightfully so, the, the focus on kind of this like deficit mindset of how if black people can't see themselves as white people, then they are harmed or whatever. But, yeah. but I feel like the story of that doesn't get told is that there was actually research in there talking about the harms to white kids of segregation. Yeah. And, and if, if white people are the most segregated people in the country— we don't ever think about that as a harm to us. That's right. Credit to Sherilyn Eiffel, the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, for first making me aware of that missed part of the, the social science research. We are all so familiar with the doll test, right? The black and white right. dolls and how you know segregation had caused black children to, to know that the black dolls were worse. But there was also the best social science of the day was saying that white children are harmed by a system that communicates values of fairness and equality and then acts in such a detrimental way and an unfair way. And that keeps them apart from other children. And I think about that in terms of a logic that could have made an intervention in the zero-sum way of thinking about race, the way in which we think about our community as a whole as being divided into an us and them. And it's sort of about, you know, parceling out benefits on one side and costs on the other. A fixed pie of benefits. A fixed a, pie of benefits. One, yeah. one small pie of benefits that if, if more go to you, less go to me. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think about the logic that the Brown decision communicated, which was basically that it is unconstitutional to keep Black children out of the good white stuff, right? Right. And the good white space, which reified the idea that white spaces are good. Right. And, you know, we still have that logic. Yep. Right? It's, it's still quantified in the differential in housing values in neighborhoods that have white schools with high test scores. It's still quantified in the, you know, great schools indexing. It's, it's still quantified. We, we try not to say their name on this podcast. <laughs> okay, sorry, never mind. <laughs> schools. Right. <laughs> so I wanted to both unearth that history of Brown v. Board and to talk to parents who had chosen global majority schools and to some of the children after that decision to see what kind of world that created for them. And it was one of the more inspiring set of conversations that I had, for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about all of that harm that comes from sort of that that missed opportunity to reframe that. I mean, you even cite Deborah Hololian. This, you know, research that like the presence of one black student is actually beneficial to white kids. Yeah. But only one black student is not actually that beneficial to the black student. Right. In the, you know, in the same way as, as a big group. And so I feel like so much of our diversifying of schools efforts are kind of predicated on that, like, white benefit viewpoint that like, yeah, we can have a couple of black kids in our good white schools and that will be good for our white kids because we want our kids to have diversity and we want our kids to like know, you know, some people who are not like, not a lot of people, you know, not like, <laughs> not I think too many. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Chase Bellingham and Matthew Hunt have this research that, you know, all things being held equal somewhere around 30, 35% black students is where white parents start to say that's not a good school anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's just, just, yeah, this missed opportunity to reframe that as. And then I think that, you know, it shows up. We look at U.S. corporations spend $8 billion a year on diversity training. Mm-hmm. It's like remedial education yep. for white kids who never experienced that. That's right. In their incredibly white schools. Yeah. There's just this like massive cost. So there's a cost to the white kids. And then there's a cost to the system as a whole yeah. for, for having done that. It's from an economic standpoint, racism, segregation, this level of massive disparity is a killer, right? Like it is right. just absolutely costing us so much. And it's it's common sense, right? If you have so many of the players on your team sidelined because they are locked out of opportunity and they're saddled with debt, obviously they're not going to be on the field scoring points for your team, right? But then right. the reason why we keep tolerating that as a country is that we don't see ourselves as one team. We see ourselves as an us and a them. And by we, I really mean you know, white Americans who are far more likely in the social science data to have this worldview of the zero sum. People of color don't believe that our progress has to come at white folks' expense, but white people unfortunately do see the world in that zero sum way. Yeah, yeah. Is is there a way that growing income inequality allows for some of this to continue? Like as the wealthier you get wealthier, they're able to accumulate power and then replace the public good with private options, right? Oh, so totally. like you're not so invested in the public pool if you can have a pool in your backyard. You're not so invested in the public higher education if you can pay to go to the elite schools. Mm-hmm. You're not so invested in good public schools if you can pay to either you know, go to private school or, as we see so often, make your one little niche, highly segregated public school function like a private school through fundraising and, and other dollars and, yeah. and that. Is it a chicken and egg there? Like- well, it's just a mutually reinforcing cycle, right? And yeah. I think both on the top end, right, there's a sort of arms race to run away from what systemic racism has done to our public schools, But then there's also the fact that our country's floor is so low that makes that mentality of scarcity when we have an economy that allows people to be one paycheck away from homelessness, when there's no guarantee of any kind of government support for so many millions of Americans if just one wrong thing happens. And usually when one wrong thing happens, seven wrong things happen, right? right? You know, your carburetor dies, you lose your job, you lose your house, then you lose your kids, right? Like that's actually happening every hour of the day in this country. Then if, if the narrative that you have is I'm on my own to fight this fight, there's no government safety net, there's no sense of solidarity, then you are sort of selfishly hoarding and desperately feeling justified in giving your kids as much possible protection from that terrible possibility. Right. Right. And if there was more of a sense that, you know, we're not going to let anybody face that level of deprivation, then I think white parents might unclench their fists a little bit. around this need to protect their children from the hell that is the American economy. Right. So I think it both works at the top end inequality does in terms of creating this, this vicious cycle of resource hoarding and not having a floor of, of decent life creates at the bottom and at the middle, this, this sense of desperate claim to every small advantage that a white supremacist society can dole out to you. And this is what I find throughout my journey to write The Sum of Us 
as the most inspiring thing is when people actually say, you know what? No, I'm not going to fight over crumbs. I'm going to link arms with the other millions of people who are also facing these common struggles and say, we want better things for all of us. Right. And that's really the only way that we've ever made progress in this country. And, and I started calling those things the solidarity dividends, these gains that can only come through collective action, that we simply can't win on our own. Things like better funded schools. Like it's, I know, I know that a lot of parents think they can just like do it on their own, but like, you know, there is something called taxes and public investment and public goods that are supposed to have us be able to have music programs and arts enrichment and public pools and public parks and public libraries. Like, you know, those are best delivered publicly. Right. And we shouldn't have to keep trying to privatize them. But that's been the logic of racism and the logic of the drained public pool at work. Right. Because because we're we're just like so terrified of some of those benefits going to them because we are not a we. If the government and the ruling elite has taught you to disdain and distrust a group of people and then sort of on a dime tells you that you're supposed to share public goods and the public pool with them. That was seen by the majority of white Americans, either consciously or unconsciously, as a betrayal. And this rise of anti-government sentiment since then has really been about that that core betrayal. I I find data in in the book that shows that two-thirds of white Americans before the civil rights movement wanted the government to guarantee a job for everyone in America and wanted a minimum income in the country. <laughs> and then by 19, I know you laugh because can you uh, imagine? Two thirds of people. It's what, like, yeah, you can't. Right? Two thirds of white people. Two thirds of black people still think that's a great idea because it is right. a great idea. You know, it's like, right. but that level of support plummeted between 1960 and 1964 among white people from nearly 70% to just 35%. And between 1960 and 1964, yeah, we had the March on Washington. We had Kennedy go on a big media blitz for civil rights. And then, of course, we know that Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, would be the last Democrat to run for president and win the majority of the white vote. Yeah, I I don't think I had actually put that together in my mind, that, that since Johnson linked the Democratic Party with civil rights, the majority of white people have not supported a Democrat for president. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, even more broadly have pulled back on support for the role of government in supporting the public, right? Yeah. Have gone from it being okay to give quote handouts to create a middle class when that middle class was white Mm -hmm. to, to feeling like a government shouldn't be giving handouts. Yeah. Gone from, you know, the idea of setting a floor for a standard of living in this country to, to not at all. That's right. It's yeah. It's, it's uh, it's a little depressing. Yeah. That's hard. <laughs> you know, thinking specifically about the segregation piece and, and particularly related to schools, what, what could be gained if we could push back on that, if we could do something about that? And maybe to, to start with sort of as individuals, like personally, and I think there's a, a great example of that is Fiona, who you interviewed for the book. Yeah. So I talked to Fiona, who is the daughter of Tracy. Tracy is a woman, a white woman in Poughkeepsie who, before there was a movement around it, you know, opted to keep her two white children in the global majority school that was in their district of where they lived in Poughkeepsie. And Poughkeepsie is a place where IBM is headquartered. And there's actually this crazy thing that happens all the time where the white neighborhood sues to secede their school district from the tax base of the broader part of the city. And that area called Spackenkill includes IBM, right? So all the revenues from the big employer in the city get hoarded with the white neighborhood. And then the rest of the city has to go without. The the city lured in with tax breaks up the wazoo. Exactly, right? Um, so that's crazy. Um, but so she did not do that. She did not moved us back and killed. She was living in, in a diverse neighborhood in, in Poughkeepsie and, and sent her kids to that public school. And so she talked about, you know, her decision to do that and all that. But I really want to talk to her kids who are now teenagers. Her daughter, Fiona, was a freshman in college when I met her. And she was just so lovely. And she really talked about what a, what a gift it was for her to, go to Poughkeepsie High, which is the the public school, which is a majority, you know, black uh, and brown school, and how it really shaped her 
view of the world and her level of like bridge building, empathy, it really put her on the path that is now her career path. She wants to work in environmental justice and social Mm -hmm. justice. And it's because she just has a more well-rounded view of the world. And she is now at a college where it's, you know, overwhelmingly white and the black and brown population is actually quite small. And she talked a little bit while always being very generous to the white students, but she did talk about like their level of just visceral comfort around being around black students was so much lower. Right. But she did say, she said, you know, kids who went to segregated schools, basically, you know, it's not like they can't get there. It's just harder for them. And it's going to take them longer. Yeah, it was really beautiful to have that conversation with her. Yeah, so that's the sort of personal, what can be gained for white kids. I mean, that's certainly, you know, some part of why my kids are in the school they are. Um, More broadly, thinking about kind of what could be gained for society. I mean, I think like, like she is... She starts out with a head start, right? She is she is more likely to be a helpful ally in the fight for racial justice because it's less work for her because of her comfort, because of all those things. A hundred percent. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, so we've mentioned your mom a couple times now, Dr. Christopher. She has a sort of vision of truth, racial healing, and transformation. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. And then if you see a role for, for schools in doing some of that work. So a few years ago, my mom, when she was at the Kellogg Foundation, which is a social justice philanthropy, she created a framework for the country undergoing a process, which we've never done and sorely need to, of a kind of a truth commission, but one that understands that we have to tell the truth, we need to heal from our racial wounds, all of us. And then we need to transform. We don't need to reconcile because we were never together to begin with, right? We were born as a country with this false belief in a hierarchy of human value. So she created this framework for communities to use, which you can find more information about at healourcommunities.org. And it basically is a way for stakeholders in a community or an institution to come together and do a process that unearths the real racial history of the community or the institution and creates opportunities for racial healing and these things called racial healing circle, which have a whole sort of system and protocol around them, and then identifies a community vision that is new. That is, what is mm. what does our community look like if it's free of this false belief in a hierarchy of human value? And it's really a remarkable Effort. I mean, obviously, I'm somewhat biased in that it's my mother's own genius, but I I came around to it kind of late in life. You know, I was sort of an economics person and only sort of later really realized how much racism was at the core. Um, But the idea is that, you know, we're still a very young country. And if we can get everyone on the same page about the basic facts, which are not so hard to figure out, right? We've only been around for a little over 200 years, you know? Right. If we get on the same page, then we can turn it, you know? And, and if we can replace the values that were hammered into us in order to justify an economic model that we no longer support, yeah. right? We no longer support chattel slavery. And therefore, why do we still have the belief systems that supported it when it's costing us so much And when it has convinced the majority of white voters to turn away from the formula that created the great white middle class, when it's costing us so much in terms of opportunity for our children, when it's creating mass delusion that stops us from addressing climate change, when it's perpetuating assaults on our democracy, you know, the cost is too high. Yeah. And the benefits of working together and of really seeing that the proximity of so much difference, human difference, um, can reveal our, our common humanity, that that is so much more important than these false divisions. I, I love it. I, I love that there's both a looking back and a looking forward element to it, right? That, that we have to see the past with clear eyes. That's right. And we have to be able to imagine a better future. 100%. And I do think, I mean, I hope maybe that schools could play a role in something like this, right? Because schools have the possibility, at least, for proximity to human difference, right? For <laughs> revealing our common humanity. And I think the, the power of youth to envision a future that we can't imagine yep. feels really powerful to me. That's right. Um, 
But before I let you go, I have one more thing that, that I'd like to ask you. So I, I think that the book is amazing. I think it's a great offering to our country. I think it's a book that, that I read it and like completely changed my perspective. I feel like, you know, same thing with Color of Law, with New Jim Crow, the sort of like, it's so obvious, it makes so much sense. And, and now I like can't unsee it. I think we are fortunate that you wrote it. I think it's an important piece of perfecting our union. Hmm. Thank you. And sort of thinking about the trajectory of your life, right? All, all of the things that had to go right for you to end up where you are mm-hmm. from, you know, your, your great grandmother, Flossie, <laughs> actually being able to make all the payments on her place to your mom instilling this sort of sense that you can do anything, that you can be anyone, that you can go to an all white boarding school and still maintain your humanity and, and not have that cost you your soul. Mm-hmm. There's sort of this like th- these generations of your family that have fought these battles year over year slowly advancing the cause of your family and I think also slowly advancing the cause of America, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you said your mom was like, this is what you do is you give back, is you find a way to kind of lift people up. Mm -hmm. sort of bringing us closer to living the ideals of our nation, right? And then then I think about, like, maybe the most devastating part of your book, for me at least, was the black homeowners targeted in the subprime mortgage crisis, right? And, And the ways that so many of them will never recover. Yeah will never have the opportunity to set their kids up for success mm-hmm. in the ways that you were set up for success. Yeah. And what a devastating tragedy that is for them, obviously, but for us as a country, you know, all of the brilliance that we will never get to kind of tap into that will never, never lift us up as a country yeah. Yeah. because of that. You said you have a two and a half year old. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the kind of tra- the trajectory of the country, the world that you want him to inherit what does it look like? Like, what, what's that dream? I, I, I think you have a clear-eyed realism about the myth of American exceptionalism in the past. Mm. But it feels like you hold out hope for a vision of American exceptionalism in the future. And I'm wondering what that vision looks like. Thank you. Um, my vision is that this country, which will soon be a place with no racial majority really does create a new world, right? Mm. Not a new world based on stolen land and stolen people and stolen labor, but a new world based on our common humanity as revealed by being so close to all the peoples of the world, Mm. which is where we are headed. And if we can reveal our common humanity and really finally reject the lie from our founding, the lie of racial hierarchy, with the power and the resources that we've amassed, much of it Mm ill-gotten, we can create the investments and opportunity structures and problem solving that saves the planet and that heals the world. Like, I truly do believe it. I mean, there's, there's nothing we can't do as a people if we set our minds to it. And yet, by robbing us of our history and by lying to us about who we all are, the forces that are trying to move us backwards have have robbed us of our superpower. I do believe that diversity is our superpower in this Mm. country and that we've got to refill the pool of public goods for everyone. We've got to realize that because of history, because of racism, we're not all standing at the same depths of that pool, right? right? That one size is not going to fit all, that it's right and good that there be repair and reparations to unleash the power and the productivity of all of our people. And that if we do so, you know, not the sky isn't the limit, the, the solar system's the limit, right? right. I mean, right. I grew up with Star Trek. I'm still, you know, gunning for that. That's what yep. I think we're going to do. You know? Holding out hope. <laughs> I yeah. think we're going to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it really is about our power to solve problems collectively, to ensure the, the common good, to make sure that every child has the capacity an opportunity to live up to her potential and that that potential is one that is found and discovered in relationship with other human beings. Mm. And I'm, I'm actually an optimistic person. I believe that we can get there. 
I believe particularly that the youngest generation of Americans is already there and just dragging us kicking and screaming into the beautiful future. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Um, and um, I'm really um, so grateful to you, Andrew, and, and to Courtney and to all of the people in this community for, for being a beacon of what we should be doing with our communities and with our, with our schools. Mm. Thank you for that. That's beautiful. Your hope is, is contagious. I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the book and for, for all that you are doing to, uh, yeah, to help perfect our union. It's inspiring. And the book is, is incredible. I mean, it's ostensibly a policy book. I know you are, you know, claim to be a policy wonk and there is nothing policy wonky about the book. It is so, uh, it, I mean, I guess when you get into the notes, the second half of the book, which is all notes, maybe gets a little wonky, but the story is so compelling. It's just, it's great. Thank you for writing it and thank you for sharing it and thank you for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for all that you said. So, Val, what did you think? Man, so much to really dig into. And I want to start, I think, just the social determinants of health. Mm. That quote that you can't heal an unwell physical body that's in an unwell social situation. Yeah. That was deep. Yeah, that that work of Dr. Gail Christopher, Heather McGee's mother, you just, you know, so powerful. and And I don't know, you just feel the profound impact that, she had on Heather and, and all the ways that she worked to set her up for success. Just the idea that her mom talks about, you know, you can move mountains, you can do whatever you want to do, and how she first realized that going to her boarding school mm. with white kids walking around like they own the place. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that is something that, unfortunately, black kids generally just are not taught to do. And it goes right. back to that idea that she asked, like, do you tell your children in the world is stacked against them. And like, you know, you don't want to do that, right? right? And so to be able to live in a world where every child feels and knows, because it's not just a feeling, um, it's yeah. knowing that you are able to move mountains is certainly the kind of world I would like to create for the next seven generations. Yeah, that's a healthy society. That is a healthy society, right? It means a lot to me to have a society that's well yeah. And I don't know if I'm thinking about that now in context of our global pandemic that we're living through, you know, but certainly having a well society where people not only are physically well, but are emotionally well, just really feels like a meaningful thing to work toward. And you just think about what happens when people are unwell, right? Because it's not just an isolated thing. And if that's not really evident right now in the, in the world that we're living in, I don't know how else we're going to learn that. And so the idea that we really, we really can with a few choices, I say few, it all seems so simple to me, Andrew. Like, <laughs> it seems like <laughs> yeah. we can fix this. Like, what are we doing? It's not complicated. It's, it's hard, it's but not. it's not complicated. Right. Yeah. It's not. And so the idea that we can choose a well society so that others, other people can actually get well in their physical body seems like such a worthy goal. And I think schools do play a role in that right they certainly should right mm -hmm. they certainly should like we have a huge responsibility for these young people that we are we're raising yeah on the one hand there's this great opportunity for schools to play that role of kind of creating a well society and it feels like so often we we just put all of society's ills onto schools Absolutely. and ask them to fix it H how do we kind of balance out what is there's clearly a role for schools to play in in making a well society right and we can't just say our kids are going to be here for eight hours a day, nine months out of the year, fix it. Yeah. And I can't separate this conversation from where we are right now in the global pandemic because yeah. so many people are struggling. And so, again, if we can't see right now that we are an unwell society and that we have an opportunity to do some things differently, yeah. um, I don't want the next lesson. <laughs> I feel like the <laughs> right. lessons only get more difficult. Yeah. And I don't want the next one. Yeah. I think it's much easier to imagine that everybody could be healthy, mm -hmm. you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually, everybody could be healthy. And that doesn't have to come at the cost to other people. Like that feels right. like an easier idea to wrap your mind around maybe than this, this mindset of there's like a fixed pie of good schools out there and I've got to get yeah. into the good school. 
Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, right? Because it is easy to imagine everyone healthy, mentally, physically, spiritually. But do we have the same amount of money? See, now you're asking for too much, Andrew. You're asking for too much. Right. Thinking about the economic imperative, and obviously she's an economist, and you yeah. know, she's she's looking at the world in this way. It just does not pay for us <laughs> to be a racist society. It pays right. not at all. It actually costs. What are your thoughts on that? I struggle with this kind of line of, of reasoning around this topic because it, it's like not why I come to this work or kind of like mm-hmm. why this work touches me and feels important. And it feels like such an easy entry point for people who might be kind of on the fence is like, you don't actually have to care about like the social good. You don't have to think Black Lives Matter, even if you're only into it for your own, you know, economic well-being, if you're only into it for GDP. Right. And, you know, I struggle with this a little bit because I, I do feel like there's issues with capitalism, with the way that we like measure mm-hmm. what is success and, you know, the problems with GDP is kind of the be-all, end-all of are we successful or not, I think is really problematic. Mm-hmm. But if that's all you care about, we're we're still shooting ourselves in the foot. Right. It's still harmful. Still be smart it's still about not it. the right choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I say about, you know, <laughs> environmental things. Y'all, if you want to rape and pillage the earth, you need an earth to rape and pillage. Like, what yeah. is the problem? Like, this yep. is just common sense. But I think people have a very short-term individualistic idea about how yeah. how it works, right? And so do I need to care about the economic impact of it if my kids are going to be okay or if my kids are right. almost out of school and some people choose not to? So I think individualism probably really hurts us in that very logical argument that it just does not help the bottom line for us to be yeah. racist. Right. And and so then it's like the the question is why? Like why do we continue to do this? Like mm-hmm. there are some folks who are gaining from perpetuating this. It is clear that some powers that be want to create, you know, just a sense of scarcity, right? It seems like we should be far enough <laughs> removed away from like the monarchy, but there is, I think, a, a still a real desire to have separate classes where some people get the best and other people yeah. get the leftovers. And and I'm not quite sure how that's learned or unlearned. Maybe unlearned. I mean, yeah, I think it right. It has been it has been learned. It has been intentionally created this this sense of a fixed by this sense of zero sum this sense yeah. of us and them because there are those who who are advantaged by it but yeah. the the glimmers of hope that show up in the book and in the conversation i think are these you know what she refers to as solidarity dividends that the the, the things that are the most powerful that happen that actually you know benefit the most people are these areas where we decide we are going to come together yeah we're going to lock arms and say you know, we we demand better. All of us demand better. I mean, I think that's why I love our collaboration, because I think as many of these attempts at solidarity as we can do, the better off we'll be. Right. Yeah. And um, I think modeling that for our listeners is really important as well, yeah. because I, I do think people question a white and or privileged person's intentions when coming into a predominantly black or brown school space. Like, what are yep. you doing here? Are you here for me? Are you just here for yourself? You know, what's going on in the neighborhood? I think those are all... um, Well-earned skepticism. Yeah. All all real concerns, right? And I don't think that path to solidarity is an easy one, but it's one that we certainly need to keep trying um, to figure out. What does that look like, to keep trying? So my son plays basketball, and um, his team is all black, and there's one white child on the team. And so um, I saw a white mother at one of the games and she had on the shirt that said like racism sucks or something much more clever than that. So <laughs> that was the um, concept. That yeah. Was the yeah that was the concept. Yeah. That was the concept. And I, the first thing I said to her was I like, I like your shirt. Right. And I didn't know who, who or her child was. I did not make any assumptions. Right? So we're sitting you in the had a guess, though. <laughs> I did have a, you know, I had a guess, but you yeah. know, I'm just trying to be easy. And so we're sitting together at the next game and I'm like, who's your son? And she's like the white one. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, cool. But I think what she did was make very clear what her intentions were, right? Like she wore it on her shirt. Right. And what I did was, recognize the fact that she's just trying to make headway and I can trust her to at least agree on that thing with me. Mm -hmm. I think I tell that story 
because we have to, and I think especially white parents have to make your intentions really clear about Mm. why you're here. You have to name it. It has to be public. People should not have to like guess. And you shouldn't like, right, sit around assuming that you're going to get the benefit of the doubt. Right. And then I can just speak for me as a black person, but other folks of color, like if you see a white person, you know, name in it, like just give them a shot, right? Like Mm. just give them a shot. And I think that is what these attempts look like. Right. How do you think about the, like the line between trying to state your intent clearly and being performative? Um... Because I worry, I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a, I don't have a Black Lives Matter shirt. You need to get one. <laughs> I, think, I think Black Lives Matter. And, and I, and I, I really, this is like a place where I, where I'm like reconsidering my, my previous thought had sort of been like, that's performative. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to go out and kind of try to live the, that Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and show it through my actions mm-hmm. and the, like, putting the sign up in the yard and wearing the t-shirt, the bumper sticker, that feels more performative. Mm. But I think I may be missing a piece of of kind of the value in in communicating that. So if I'm driving through a neighborhood and I see Black Lives Matter signs, I feel like I'm going to be safe, at least with one neighbor. Right. I know where Mm. I can run. I know I can Mm -hmm. run if things ever go Mm -hmm. down. I think right now it's especially important for that because, you know, it's it's a mess out here right now. Yeah. It's, it's a mess out here right now. And so there is something important about proclaiming your values and your stance, period. Um, if that feels performative to you, why? Yeah, that's interesting. It doesn't f- feel like I'm not sure that I believe that. You know, like there, I have plenty to do to like do better at living into Black Lives Mattering. That's like mm-hmm. an ongoing work every day. Right. I don't have any question that I believe that and and want to live into that. But I do think it is easy to stop at the yard sign. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to stop at the yard sign. But I think that that has also made me maybe hesitant to just even start with the yard sign. Hmm. I wouldn't spend my money on a sign that I didn't believe in and just stick it in my yard. <laughs> like, but, yeah. but, maybe, but maybe that's No, but there's different. like a, there's like an, I mean, you know, there's even a like, let me assuage my guilt by mm. donating money to, mm-hmm. you know, or like shopping black owned mm-hmm. businesses. All those things I think are important. I try yeah. to do all those things. And, I, and I, I do think there's probably a value in this that I have not given enough credit to of the like social messaging. There's lots of social messaging out there sort of counter to the idea that Black Lives Matter, right? And so right. I think I probably have undervalued the the value of just like having that message out there more often. I mean, how 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 would I know? How would I know? Yeah. I mean, my hope would be that I would have enough of a chance to get to know you that through my actions, through our conversations, that you would then like know me enough to know that I that I believe that Black Lives Matter. Why would I want to get to know you? Yeah, you probably you know you know and 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 not not in a bad way, but if you are coming into my all black school, and I don't know what you believe, and I've already have my assumptions about what this means for my neighborhood, am I going to be able to afford to live here soon? Right. Then I I just don't know. It's not enough to just be like I'm putting on my Black Lives Matter shirt and then I'm good. Right. I can just like go about colonizing this school in my Black Lives Matter shirt and I'm good to go. No. But that there is value in kind of stating your intentions up up front. I mean, I think think that's important. Hmm. We don't know even who to try to build solidarity with if we don't know what they believe. Right. And because of the way school is structured and certainly right now with parents barely having an opportunity to connect with one another, you have to name it right from the beginning. You have to name it right from the beginning. Yeah. And that's not enough to just name it, but you have to start by naming it. And then maybe we can kind of live into this, you know, the dream of these solidarity dividends that that Heather McGee talks about. It is a hopeful dream that feels warm. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we can do this. Um, We can do this. This is easy, Andrew. We (laughs) Listeners, we told y'all we could really solve racism if they just let us, just let us... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just let us solve the problem. Well, once listeners share the podcast with all of their friends and family, then we'll, we'll be on the right track. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to Heather McGee for writing the book, for being willing to come on, for including integrated schools in the book. We were so, that was dope. So shocked and pleasantly surprised when we realized that. 
So, listeners, if you've enjoyed the conversation, if you've enjoyed the podcast, come on and support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash integrated schools. We'd be very grateful. Please share the podcast with all of your friends and neighbors. I'm sure you can get a CDR. Just do a throwback. Record it on CDR <laughs> and put it in their mailboxes. <laughs> if you do that, definitely let us know. I want to know about that. That would be amazing. I do too. <laughs> Yep. That's that's what that's what era I'm living in. Just FYI. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, Val, it is a pleasure to be in this with you. As I try to know better and do better. Always, I am so excited to be in this community with you, Andrew. Until next time. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be like you just step out and say. I believe Black Lives Matter, but just asking the questions. You know, I shouldn't like get a dashiki and like. No. There's a line. <laughs> there is a line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>